pick up some broccoli or an orange. It doesn't have a food label, so you don't have to read the fat content. Don't worry about it. But when you go through the more processed food aisles and you pick up your vegan pizza, you think, okay, this is fine, or the veggie burger. Before you put it in your shopping cart, look at the label and see if it's got less than three grams of total fat. If it's more than that, that's fattier than we're going to want. But do be careful, even things that sound really healthy, like avocados or olive oil, to tackle our hormone waves, we want to have it be not only vegan, but keep the fats really low too. So how do I do that much? We have found a way to make this really easy. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for raising your health IQ with us. This is episode 61 of season 4, number 255 overall. And this is also the final episode of our three-part series on the WAVES study. That's groundbreaking research providing relief from severe symptoms of menopause. And if you'll recall, in parts one and two, we learned that four out of five women will have the unfortunate displeasure of having hot flashes during menopause. Those hot flashes, they make things uncomfortable during the day, and then they create restless, heat-filled nights. But what the study finds is remarkable that women who began to eat a low-fat plant-based diet that included a half cup of soybeans a day, well, they experienced an 84% drop in moderate to severe hot flashes. Better yet, more than half of the women also said that their hot flashes stopped cold. They didn't have them anymore. And today on the show, we're going to take things a step further with Dr. Neil Barnard. He is here to share a three-step plan that you can follow to tackle menopause. Easy steps that hopefully will bring some dramatic relief. Also today, we'll be hearing from another woman who participated in the study. You will hear firsthand how switching her diet helped her feel better and live more comfortably. Francine Reagan Pollock is here with us today. And then we're going to put a bow on everything by taking a more intimate look at menopause. And we're going to be doing that with Dr. Christy Cobb. Now, Dr. Cobb is a gynecologist and a sexual wellness expert. She's here to dispel the myth that sex stops after menopause. We're going to be talking about some of the options to actually heat things back up in the bedroom as those hot flashes cool off. We're going to be getting into some options and some ideas that run the entire spectrum of treatment here. What doctors are prescribing the most to non-medical options and even how that diet change may help as well. Dr. Kopp is also going to have us rethink intimacy after 50. It's kind of like closeness in a brand new light. But let's begin today with Dr. Barnard and his three steps to tackle menopause. This is very exciting because this is the practical 
tips portion of this three-part podcast series. This is okay. We know that a diet change can really help, but how in the world do we do it? And I know that you have come up with three great ways that women can tackle menopause by changing their diet. Let me walk you through it. The three steps are that it should be a vegan diet, no animal products. Secondly, keep oils really low, even the healthy oils, we're going to keep them low. And the third, when we're tackling menopause, it's good to bring some soybeans into it. And I'll show you how to do that. Okay. Um, Chuck, if it's okay with you, I'm just going to walk through all three of, the, three of these. Of course. Let's go for it. All right. Uh, vegan diet. You, you might know this diagram already. Fruits, grains, vegetables, legumes. That's a fancy word for beans and lentils. Um, that's going to be what we're going to be eating from. And you need to take vitamin B12 along with it for healthy blood and healthy nerves. Okay, so that's my diet. Um, the second step for many people is more challenging. And let me make this specific. Let's say you're dealing with hot flashes. Regardless of what you decide you're going to do forever and ever and ever 10 years from now, for the short term, for the next three weeks or so, let's keep the oils out of it. So learn to cook without cooking oils, uh, avoid the nuts and the avocado and so forth for now. And if you go into the produce department, pick up some broccoli or an orange, it doesn't have a food label. So you don't have to read the fat content. Don't worry about it. But when you go through the more processed food aisles and you pick up your vegan pizza, you think, okay, this is fine. Or the veggie burger. Before you put it in your shopping cart, look at the label and see if it's got less than three grams of total fat. If so, have it. If it's more than that, that's fattier than we're going to want. Okay, so here is some peanut butter. Uh, two tablespoons of fat has six, ooh, 16 grams of fat. Okay, hmm, that's more than three. But now here's black beans. Let's look at that. And here I'm going to have about a half a cup and 0 0.5 grams. Okay, so the beans are my winner here. Um, but do be careful, even things that sound really healthy, like avocados or olive oil, for this, for, to tackle our hormone waves, we want to have it be not only vegan, but keep the fats really low too. Okay, so how do I do that much? This will seem like a job if you have never done a plant-based diet, but we have found a way to make this really easy. Okay, step one, take a week, seven days. During this seven-day step, you don't have to avoid anything. What we're going to do is check out the possibilities. We're going to see what could I eat if I was eating only plant-based foods. So to make a list, right? Breakfast, lunch, dinner, snack. And I'm serious. Actually do this. Our patients here at the Barnard Medical Center all do this. And so do our research participants. You take a piece of paper, write them down. And you need some ideas. And these pictures are actually uh, foods from my book, Your Body in Balance. And I want to tip my hat to Lindsay S. Nixon, who came up with all of these beautiful, beautiful, beautiful recipes. And the reason I'm mentioning that is you need some ideas. Um, look at books, look at websites. Your Body in Balance is a great uh, resource, if you ask me, because Lindsay and I work to have foods that exactly met our principles. But you'll see many, many others online. And do ch check them out. Um, for example... I could have healthy pancakes without the butter. I could have oatmeal without the healthy, without the unhealthy cream. Instead of scrambled eggs, scrambled tofu. Um, my lunch could be not a hamburger, but a veggie burger. Fair enough. Lots of choices. Um, I go to an Italian place. 
Speak the meat sauce on the spaghetti. Have the marinara sauce, the arrabbiata sauce. Have the pizza without the cheese. Latin American cuisine, easy. Beans and rice, veggie fajitas, you name it. Uh, Chinese rice, vegetables, tofu dishes. Uh, sushi bars, skip the fish sushi, but you can have cucumber roll, asparagus roll, sweet potato roll, edamame, seaweed salads, all kinds of neat things to explore. Um, fast food, not the pinnacle of culinary art, but Subway has you covered. Uh, Chipotle, uh, you'll see bean burritos, all kinds of things at different fast food restaurants and check them out. So all I'm doing is during this initial phase, I'm taking a week, you're taking a week, and we're figuring out what my options could be. And after a week, you got a pretty darn good list. Okay, great. You've done fabulously. Now the next step is to put that list to a test. For the next three weeks, let's go vegan. And that, now that's easy because, frankly, you can do anything for three weeks. And secondly, you've already got your list. So after these three weeks, you discover you're feeling better, you're feeling a lot better. You're losing some weight. Your hot flashes are probably starting to budge and then take it from there. A quick tip. You don't have to give up skepticism. If you're thinking, I'm not sure this is going to really work for me. That's OK. Um, you don't have to believe in penicillin. You just take it and the penicillin will work for you. So by analogy, you don't have to believe in the diet. You just have to, to do it and see what happens. Okay. Um, now I mentioned step three was soybeans and let me walk you through how to prepare them because for a lot of people, they're new to this. This is edamame. Edamame is not what I'm talking about. Edamame is the juvenile soybean. It's good. It's fine. Have it. You have it. It's great. But the isoflavones that are the sort of soybean magic, they mature as the soybean matures. So edamame has a little bit, but the actual mature soybeans have a lot. You can go online and here's Laura soybeans. You'll see them. There are other brands um, that you'll find um, and they'll specify non-GMO. And you pop them in your instant pot or your other pressure cooker and cook them for about 40 minutes. And if you have never done this, open up the instant pot or whatever it is, uh, put the soybeans inside, cover them with about two inches of water, close it up, cook them on for 40 minutes. You don't want them to be al dente because you're not going to be able to digest them. Uh, 40 minutes, they'll be soft. Now, let's say you want to just do it with the old fashioned stovetop method. Fine. Soak them overnight. That softens them up. Some people add a little bit of salt to the cooking water because that keeps the, the, the bean skin a little bit softer, then rinse them out in the morning, add fresh water to it, and boil them for about an hour to an hour and a half. Make sure they are well cooked and really, really soft. Now, you can eat them just like they are. Put them in in little boxes, um, Ziploc bags or, or little Tupperware type boxes, and just portion them out. A half a cup a day is the amount shown to reduce hot flashes. Or throw them on a salad, throw them in a soup, or you want to have fun? Let's roast them. Let me show you how we do this. You pressure cook them first. So we're going to start with cooked soybeans. Step two, take parchment. Have you ever gotten this parchment paper? You can put it in the oven, and if it's the right kind, it will not burn. Um, at least it won't burn by the time we're, we're making our soybeans. Um, so you spread the parchment paper on a baking sheet, 
And then you spread the soybeans out uh, a little thin. Don't have them all piled up. And then set your oven for 350 and bake them for, uh, roast them for 45 to 60 minutes. Now, when I do this, they are much better at, I like them at 60 minutes. 60 minutes. You want to get that extra moisture out of them. And then you can season them up however you might want. Salt, cayenne, garlic powder, basil, oregano, anything. Some people like to add the seasonings before they roast them. Experiment. Have at it. See what happens. And let me show you, actually. I hope you can see this. These are some soybeans that I roasted up, oh, maybe two weeks ago or so. And they are still crunchy, just kind of like dry roasted peanuts or something like that. They work fine. They have a long shelf life. If you're going on a trip, stick them in a bag. They're great. Or put them in a Tupperware like this. Work great. Okay. Um, now, you might say, well, can I get isoflavones in some other soy products? You can the advantage of the whole mature soybeans is they have a lot more isoflavones. If you're going to try to do this with soy milk, you'd need about two quarts of soy milk to, to get the isoflavones that you would get from a half a cup of whole soy. Uh, tofu, you can do it, but about eight ounces would be the equivalent of a half a cup of whole soy. So there you have it, Chuck. Uh, I hope people will give it a try. Yeah, that's a, that's a whole lot of info on soy. Um, a, a couple of things to unpack here. Um, number one, I noticed that uh, in your recipe for roasted uh, soybeans there, uh, you did not include any oil. And I know that if you go down any grocery store aisle and you see uh, roasted beans, whether it's soy or it's uh, a lot of times it's, it's roasted chickpeas, they do have oil in there. Does that affect the flavor at all? Or are we still talking pretty darn scrumptious here? Leave the oil out. They are very tasty. If you want to add a little bit of salt or a little bit of Bragg's or some nutritional yeast or whatever, have at it and experiment and try. And you can even do your experiment in one in one time you're cooking. Spread out on your baking sheet. Have here are some where I salted them. Here are some where I added some Bragg's. Here are some I left plain. See which see how you like it. Um, you can also take some out at 50 minutes. Uh, take some others out at 60 minutes. Take some out at a minute, uh, an hour 15. Um, have fun with it and you'll see what you like. But adding oil, no, you do not need to add oil at all and you're better off without it. And for those of us, uh, myself included, who are novices when it comes to using uh, the Instant Pot with soy, uh, is this one of those things where you need to rinse them before you put them in the Instant Pot? Because you mentioned rinsing if you do the stovetop method. I'm assuming the same would apply for the Instant Pot before you put it in. Okay. Well, rinsing, yes. I, I think it's always good to, to rinse any food that you got in a package. But when I say rinse, I'm not talking soak. Um, you just rinse them under your thing and pop them in the Instant Pot. Uh, an Instant Pot and other pressure cookers, they have a little steel bowl and you can just put them in there. You rinse it, you drain it off, throw it in. So that takes, what, seven seconds? Um, you do not need to soak them the night before if you're using a pressure cooker. And I want to take a second as we kind of wrap up this series and talk about switching over to a plant-based diet. And I think that for those who aren't yet there, uh, maybe you're watching this and you have somebody you're like, yeah, I know so-and-so could really benefit from what it is Dr. Barnard's been talking about. Wonderful. As a matter of fact, I encourage you to share this episode with them. Put it on your Facebook page. Send it to them in a text. Put it up on Twitter, whatever the case may be. Just help get them that information. If you could take a second to share this, that would be tremendous. 
because I think that a lot of those people who you're trying to reach right now are people who aren't yet familiar with a plant-based diet. And they think that if they go on this vegan diet, they're only going to be able to eat salad or grass is one of the jokes that's always thrown around there. But the examples that you just showed, Dr. Barnard, I mean, some of the desserts that were on there, I mean, brownies, ice cream, I mean, just chocolate for days and it was all delicious and all of it plant-based, no dairy, throw in some soy and it can really be healthy. Can you just talk to us for a little bit about how a vegan diet is not limiting whatsoever when it comes to the menu? When I grew, I grew up in Fargo, North Dakota, and there every day in my life, it was roast beef, baked potatoes and corn, except for special occasions when it was roast beef, baked potatoes and peas. And that was kind of a limited diet, Chuck, really. Kind of <laughs> and now I'm here in Washington, D.C. And you go down the block, there's an Italian place across the street is an Indian restaurant and there's Chinese and Japanese. Every single one has just treasures that are plant based and all these wonderful foods that I never tasted in Fargo, North Dakota. Um, and I'm happy to say that Fargo's got quite a diversity of restaurants now, too. But my point is this, that a plant-based diet opens up the world to you of so many different ways of eating that you aren't going to want to go back to your roast beef, baked potatoes, and corn anymore. Um, try different things. See what you like. And um, let me tip my hat to Lindsay, Lindsay S. Nixon, who did the recipes in Your Body and Balance. Because when Lindsay and I worked together on this book, um, she, her job, at which she is a genius, was to make foods that were really quick, familiar, um, and really just tasty and delicious. And the reason for that is, let's say you're going to make something because you've read the thyroid chapter in your body and balance. You read the diabetes chapter. You read the how to survive cancer chapter. And you want to eat healthfully. But what you make, your family's got to like it, too, or whoever else you're, you're sharing your, your, your meals with. They've got to like it, too, because because if so, then they're going to support you. They're going to jump in. Um, they're going to make your journey easier and probably they're going to benefit, too. So the foods are delicious and fun. And I'm hoping people will pick up a copy of Your Body and Balance and have a look at it and share it with a friend and and, and just dig into this exploration of healthier foods. Um Frankly, a lot of people will say that, yes, there's so many reasons to be plant-based, but they just prefer the way they feel and the, and the way the foods taste. And they've kind of left behind some of the things that they grew up with and, and don't miss them anymore. And, you know, having the opportunity to do this podcast series and speaking with a number of the women who went through the study, you know, Margot, Anne-Marie, um, and I, I, I'm thinking, like, obviously – Dr. Barnard, as men, you and I will never go through menopause, but whether it's menopause or anything else, my thought on this personally is this, you're talking about doing something for a few weeks to give it a try. And you often hear this term about what do you have to lose? You have nothing to lose. You're absolutely right. You have nothing to lose. You have everything to gain. Isn't it worth a try if you are not able to sleep through the night? If you are having all of these uncomfortable hot flashes after hot flashes after hot flashes, you, Dr. Barnard, you talked about an 84% reduction in moderate to severe hot flashes among the women who participated in this study. And the women who I spoke to, they back that up 1,000%. And they say that not only did 
you know, were they able to sleep through the night? They weren't, you know, having the night sweats. They weren't having the night, uh, the hot flashes. But because of that, Dr. Barnard, so many other aspects of their life change, including their mood, because just getting a good night's sleep changed their whole perspective on life again. And somebody even remarked that their husband said that, yeah, I got my wife back. You know, so what do you have to lose? It's really you're asking for a few weeks just to give it a try. Whether it's menopause or anything else, I'm not seeing a downside to it. Menopause is a time when we're not only concerned about hot flashes, but also all the other things that well up heart disease or breast cancer or an increased risk of dementia. The same kind of diet changes help all these help all of these conditions. Final thoughts as we wrap up this series, Dr. Barnard? Um, Explore. Focus on the short term. Um, Give it a try and see what you think. Uh, Check out the recipe section. See see if those really grab you. And read the other parts of this book, too. Um, When we talk about thyroid disease, when we talk about hormone-related cancers, when we talk about impotence in men, these are all real issues that bother a lot of people. And yet the solutions we have are things we didn't have when I was in medical school. We've got them now. And so I'm eager for people to put them to work in their own lives. If you missed the first two parts of the series with Dr. Barnard, I've put links for you to listen to them, to catch up right there in the episode notes. Or you can simply go back on Apple Podcast or Spotify or however you're listening right now and look for those episodes. And also, if you hop over to YouTube or Facebook, you can watch these interviews where Dr. Barnard is doing a lot of on-screen presentations. You can see the science, see the studies firsthand in real time as he's explaining everything. And links to those videos are also in the episode notes. Let's move on now and hear from a woman who has implemented those three steps Dr. Barnard was just talking about. As a matter of fact, she was a key participant in the WAVES study. Francine Reagan-Pollock is here now to tell us how slashing fat from her diet and including more plants and soy led her hot flashes to just fade away. Thank you so very much for being here, Francine. Thank you, Chuck. I appreciate the opportunity. I am so thrilled that you're here because I have spoken now, Francine, to two other women who have gone through this study, and they have said that it has been a complete game changer for them. And I really do suspect that for you, it's been much the same. Totally, totally. Um, A real eye opener. Um, I knew that the soybeans were involved and uh, was finding that to be something really simple to add to my life on a daily basis. But what I didn't expect is the other impacts that it had on my life. Um, I was really fortunate. I, I had experienced the hot flashes for more than 10 years and more than 10 a day. They weren't uh, the hot, sweaty kind where you have to get up and get changed in the middle of the night, but enough to interrupt my day and, and also my my sleep patterns for sure. Let me let me jump in here. So you were experiencing this for a decade. Like <laughs> I would assume that then it had just kind of become the norm for you. Had you just like just accepted the fact that this is the way it's going to be. Uh, yes. And my friends too, they were used to me just 
going beat red and taking my sweater on and off maybe three, four times in a conversation. It was uh, quite ridiculous. <laughs> I, would, I would imagine so. So, I mean, how did you have to adapt to that? I would imagine like you're talking about sweaters. So, I mean, were you doing nothing but button sweaters and sweaters that zip for, you know, quick on, <laughs> quick off? We did not use the buttons or the zippers because they were on and off so frequently. Gotcha. <laughs> and then gotcha. my poor husband, he got used to the the wind from the, the blankets whipping on and off at night, right? Because just to get cool and get comfortable. So yeah, we, we adapted. <laughs> in all seriousness, though, um, how often were you waking up in the middle of the night? Like if, if this lasted 10 years before you found some relief, I would imagine that the majority of those nights you were not getting a full eight hours. No, uh, crappy sleep for sure. And I... I did the 12 weeks with the soybeans, uh, January to March, but I was part of the control group in an earlier part of the study. And for that period, what I did is I used an app to record all of the hot flashes throughout the day and night. Um, and I really got an idea then of how many I had because I really wasn't keeping track. I was trying to ignore them rather than count them. And there were so many at night that what I came to do is I would put a bunch of elastics on one wrist. And then when I'd wake up, I'd move an elastic from one wrist to the other. And in the morning, I would count the elastics. So um, definitely more than six per night on an average night. Wow. Mm. Wow. And the fact that you had to physically move the elastics from one wrist to the other. I mean, you were waking up. So that is completely interrupted sleep. Um, yeah. And you you stopped counting. I guess at some point you would just have to say like your body just adapted to waking up that much. I mean, uh, some of the other women I've spoken to said that it you know made them a little bit grumpier, certainly a little bit more groggy because they mm. weren't sleeping through the night. And you're going through this for a full decade. Like, mm. did you have a case of the decade long grumps? <laughs> no, I just got used to it. I, I think I sleep less now. <laughs> really? But um, I had to wake up to acknowledge the flash in order to move the elastic. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I can get by with not too much sleep for two out of three nights. And then the third night, I tend to sleep pretty well. So that's how my body adapted to it. So when you first started to get these hot flashes, were they more severe and then the severity kind of tapered off over time and, you, and it kind of yes. plateaued and you stayed there? Yes. Yes. That's exactly what happened. So yeah, they were more intense, uh, really fiery and uh, have become less so um, over the years. Yeah. Do you know if any other women in your family experienced such a prolonged bout? with this? I would say, I don't know for sure, but based on my mother, I, I don't think she did. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, so you're an outlier. Um, <laughs> special. So, you are special. Uh, <laughs> so uh, here's my question. Uh, before you, you stumbled across the study, what kind of diet were you eating? Were you eating that standard American diet? Were you eating kind of healthfully? You thought, like, where were you with food? 
it, it's super interesting to me because I've been following a plant-based diet for about 10 years and learning as I go, always thinking I'm doing things exactly, you know, to a T properly, and then learning little tweaks that make a big difference. Uh, what I found with the PCRM study is they introduced the concept of being a low-fat plant-based diet. And um, that, to me, was part of the huge impact that this had on my my hot flashes and my life in general. So when you say low fat, were you loading up on like avocados and nuts and things like that? Or were you doing a lot with Gardein and Impossible Burgers and things like that? Um, at home, I'm more like nuts and seeds, that sort of thing. Um, chips sneak into the house with my husband. Um <laughs> We find that ice cream goes bad very quickly. So uh, we probably cashew based or coconut based, like it, it would disappear with great speed. Gotcha. Right. So the convenience foods and also eating out in restaurants, it's um, quite a challenge to find something that's really on the reservation. We call it when you're out in a restaurant. For sure. But let's take a minute to to talk about that, because I think that there are going to be a lot of people who are watching and listening to you right now who are in the same boat, who have been eating a plant-based diet for years. And maybe the women who are listening to this are experiencing the same thing that you did. God forbid it's for, you know, 10 years that they've been going through it, you know, but at the same time, they have to feel like they're at their wits end. They've been eating what they thought was a very healthy diet, but still these symptoms will persist. Mm-hmm. How difficult was it for you? to take all of those types of foods, that ice cream, the the difficulties out at the restaurant, the chips, things of that nature. How difficult was it for you to take those out of your diet and then kind of plug in healthier options? Uh, not, not totally difficult. Um, I do have a Vitamix and the banana and ice cream or, <clears throat> excuse me, a frozen cherry ice cream with cocoa in it like a black forest kind of theme. Uh, That was really easy for the ice cream. And as far as the nuts and the seeds, I I basically just limit them. I am able to eat a small handful of walnuts every day, for example, Uh, put a tablespoon of chia into my overnight oats for breakfast. And so I'm including them, but on a more limited basis in those cases. I feel like we need to take a second to talk about this dark cherry nice cream because mm-hmm. we've talked about banana nice cream, but you have just introduced me uh, to something I have never heard of before. How yeah. does this delicious concoction work? What do I need to do? My Vitamix is about 20 feet in that direction. Well, I, I pour generously, but basically it's about three cups of frozen dark cherries Uh, For each cup, I put in a tablespoon of cocoa powder. Um, I'll add just a smidge of either dates, if I want it kind of chewy, or a little bit of maple syrup, so some sweetener. Probably a third of a cup of milk, but you want to add more almond milk, soy milk, that sort of thing. And actually, the secret I forgot to mention earlier is you add almond extract, 
which kind of brings it all together. And I'd probably add about a tablespoon, part tablespoon, a teaspoon <laughs> of that. You could add more if it turns out you like the flavor really strong. But um, yeah, it's it's awesome. Family favorite. That absolutely sounds like heaven. And so I think that when we get done with this, I will definitely be headed to the kitchen, dog in tow, and we will be trying this out. That is unbelievable. Is that your own recipe? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Yeah, Well done, Francine. I'm proud to know you. Awesome. Um, let me ask you a little bit more about soy, because that was such a a big part of this study and what it was that you were asked to go through. Mm -hmm. Um, how much soy were you eating prior to the study and how difficult was it for you to incorporate a lot of it into your new diet? Hmm. Uh, I was eating almost zero soy. I had tempeh or tofu maybe once or twice a month. Uh, Just, I didn't really care for tofu and uh, tempeh, I can eat on a limited basis. And I was using almond milk. So it was actually pretty easy. Uh, PCRM provided organic, beautiful soybeans. And those get cooked up in the instant pot basically once a week. I I continue to cook enough to last for seven days. And then I measure them out, pop most of them in the freezer. Uh, I've traveled with them, local trips. uh, But anyway, every day, probably at lunchtime, I take a half a cup of them. And my favorite way right now is I add maybe a teaspoon of uh, nutritional yeast, quite a bit, uh, fresh pepper, and just a little crunch of salt and just toss them together with a fork, nuke them for 30 seconds. And I eat them plain. I, I like them. Uh, they're not hard to include at all. I've also switched over to uh, soy milk. It's hard to find right now. I don't know why. And it's a, a fortified brand. So that we use as well. More of a condiment in our house. Nobody drinks a big glass of soy milk, but I really enjoy the soybeans. No problem. The, yeah, that nutri recipe sounds pretty daggone good too. Yeah, I mean, that's it's, it's, it seems so simple yet so tasty. Mm-hmm. Um, I might have to try that out myself. That's yeah, another I, one. You're too had, good with these recipes, Francine. I, <laughs> I love to throw things together, and when they work, then you know I repeat them. Uh, but I'd never cooked soybeans before. I I had some in my cupboard but I didn't know that they were even soybeans. This this is how familiar I was with them. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Wow. How about that? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, All right. Well, as we kind of wrap up here a little bit, um, (laughs) the recipe hour, uh, let's let's, uh, talk about, so you went from having, I think you said it was like six of these hot flashes about per night. Um, You go through the the 12 weeks here. Mm -hmm. Where are you now as far as the frequency of them? Well, it depends on the low fat as much as the soybeans. So um, I am probably three or four uh, per day, Mm -hmm. but they're really not as disruptive. They're also milder as well as being less frequent, which is awesome. And I've had some other health benefits as well. I don't know if you're interested in those. Of course, do share. Yeah. What okay. else are you experiencing? Uh, I had recently been diagnosed with GERD by my family physician, and she offered a couple of alternatives medication-wise 
And she said, or you could do it with food because she knows me quite well. And so, I, yeah, I said, yeah, I'm going to do the food thing. And I, I didn't really know what to do because she told me to eliminate all the spicy food. But um, during the 12 weeks where I reduced the fat but did not adjust the spiciness of my food, I was really surprised when it dawned on me one day that I no longer had any issues with like reflux and heartburn, especially when trying to go to sleep at night. It had disappeared. That's impressive. That's yeah. impressive. Would would that also wake you up at times at night as well? Because I know like that acid reflux can be no joke. It kept me from falling asleep. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And another thing, which is I, perhaps the best of all, is the um, mental fog, which I thought was just part of aging, uh, has disappeared. So with this um, refreshing clarity, <laughs> I've uh, gotten a piano book and started to play the piano again. I'm taking on different activities. My e-bike should show up next week unless there's another delay. And uh, it's just fabulous. Uh, to feel so much better and so much clearer mentally. I didn't even think about that. Do you think it's because your quality of sleep has improved? Could be. Yeah. Yeah. Better sleep. Um, I think fat generally kind of gums up the works in the body. So (laughs) I think less fat is also contributed to the overall success. That's great. Do you notice yeah. um, that you're also just generally happier? That that seems to be a common theme among everyone who I've spoken with thus far as well. Yes. And and I do think that better sleep has a lot to do with being happier. <laughs> no question about it. No question yeah. about it. And what also would you say to those who think that there's absolutely nothing that they can do to improve their hot flashes? They feel like they are stuck and they just have to accept it and ride it out for a decade just as you did. What kind of hope can you offer them? Well, I would say uh, try to keep an open mind and be optimistic. And hopefully PCRM uh, can provide the steps that we followed in order to have these great successes. Uh, Nobody was expecting anything. And uh, there were some amazing results in our small group. So I would say just give it a go. Jump in, give it three months like we did, and uh, keep track as you go. And hopefully you'll have some great successes too. There you go. Francine Regan Pollock, thank you so very much for your time today. I'm so happy for uh, the help that you got, uh, the relief, I should I should call it. And, mm-hmm. uh, and thank you as well for sharing your story with us today. I've got one more thing. Oh, um, by all means. Another result. I, I lost 10 pounds over the course of the 90 days. Get out of town. And uh, I'd been trying to lose five pounds for about eight years. And uh, so it just it just happened. And again, I think the whole foodness, the the low fatness and the soybeans, it all added up for something I wasn't expecting, which was great. Now you're talking. Now you're talking. Yeah, that's like double success. That's outstanding. Right? <laughs> yeah. My goodness. No wonder you're happier. Goodness gracious. You man, three months and you I mean just everything changed. Congratulations. I was shocked. I was totally shocked. Yeah. I know, as well you should be. That's fantastic. Oh, Francine, you're such a treat to talk to. Thank you so very much for being here with us today. 
really just tremendous how Francine was able to experience what she did, how her symptoms improved. And then in the previous episodes, how Anne-Marie and Margot experienced also what many think is impossible. Hot flashes being extinguished. All three of these extraordinary women say that they got their life back. You can go back, you can relive those interviews as well. Links to them are in the episode notes. But let's end this series now, this three-part series, by taking an intimate look at menopause. For so many women, sex stops as they get older. Naturally, the body changes, and sometimes it's just not comfortable anymore. But could a diet change spice up the love life once again? That is a good question. And the answer is quite possibly. And there are other options too. Dr. Christy Cobb is a gynecologist and a sexual wellness expert who was helping women get their groove back. And she's here right now to tell us how. This is the Exam Room Podcast brought to you by the Physicians Committee with the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. And today I'm talking to another champion, a sexual wellness champion. She is a gynecologist practicing in Arkansas and a remarkable, extraordinary human being. Today we are joined by the one and only Dr. Christy Cobb. Thanks so very much for being here, Dr. Cobb. Thank you, Chuck. It's always a pleasure. Today, we're going to be talking about intimacy after menopause, which I can imagine is kind of a touchy topic for women. Is it a touchy topic for women? Because <laughs> no, I, no I, pun intended. No <laughs> pun intended. Because I'm thinking about as a guy and the uncomfortable conversations we have about erectile dysfunction. So I'm wondering if there is some of those same kind of insecurities that surround this for women. Oh, Absolutely. Um, yes, I think it's, I say it's the final frontier of being a woman is entering through menopause. And because everyone's experience is so unique, I think it's, uh, you can't make generalities. Everyone has their own adventure. It's kind of a choose your own adventure. But I do think that the current generation is kind of the guinea pig of talking about it because most of their mothers either had a hysterectomy or they were on hormones the whole time, or they just never talked about it. And so I think that this is really a fun time to be a gynecologist, to work with women through this really sensitive time in their life. And how can sexual intimacy change during menopause? Is it really kind of a night and day difference? Well, caveat is that I am premenopausal, so I can't speak from you know, firsthand experience, but having ushered women through this for over a decade now, um, it is very, very unique. Um, I like to remind women that menopause is kind of like adolescence in reverse. You don't know exactly when it's going to start. You don't know exactly when it's going to end. It's not a destination. It's a place you're going to pass through. And your own experience is going to be guided by, you know, who you are as a person, what your values and goals are, what your belief system includes, and also what your health is like. And so it's probably one of the most individualized things that women can experience, adolescence, pregnancy, and menopause don't know exactly when it's going to start, but what, what's the rough age where it may begin to set in? What's, what's the average, would you say? Yeah. So in Western um, countries, it's about age 53 to 55, but the symptoms can begin up to a decade before that. And that can be the unsettling part is that pre or perimenopausal time, you know, menopause is defined as the cessation of periods, either because of surgery 
or because of a natural cessation of the hormones, you know, that stimulate ovulation every month. So 12 months, no period and or hysterectomy with your ovaries being taken out, that's going to be menopause. So for example, someone that's had a hysterectomy, but they preserve their ovaries, they're still going to go through that hormonal change, but they have no idea when their periods would have stopped. So it's kind of just a symptom guessing game. You said uh, Western uh, countries. How how is it different in Eastern countries or other countries? Well, I don't want to speak specifically about countries, but it does vary among race. Um, And so there is a little bit of a variation there. It also varies based on, you know, BMI and if you're a smoker or not. And so there's a lot of things that play into it. But good rule of thumb would be age 53 to 55. And how long can the, the symptoms last? So in my experience, um, I usually tell people to expect that there's about a five-year period where things are going to be more noticeable. Given some women have zero hot flashes, zero night sweats, like some women get through pregnancy with no nausea and vomiting. So you really have to just kind of wait and see what your experience is going to be like. And sometimes a good prognostic indicator is going to be the experience of your mom or an older sister. You just mentioned some of the symptoms, but what are some others that your patients have brought to your attention and, and are seeking help for? Yeah. So usually they come in because of hot flashes and night sweats. They know those are symptoms of menopause. But oftentimes, you know, in the review of systems or just like catching up since I've seen them for their last wellness checkup, they'll mention things like irritability or bladder changes or intimacy changes. And I think one of the unsung demons of menopause is sleep changes. And so when your sleep isn't good, then that affects everything else. And of course, weight gain, metabolism change, energy level change, joint pain. I mean, there's so many things that get pinned on menopause that may or may not be directly correlated with the hormonal shifts. And would the severity of symptoms differ for somebody who is healthier than somebody else? Say somebody who's been eating a healthy diet, living an active lifestyle. And then you have somebody who is like so many of us, you know, lead that sedentary life with a high fat diet. How might their symptoms differ? Yeah. So in general, it's been shown that people that are closer to their ideal body weight, who exercise on a regular basis and who follow a plant-based diet have reported fewer menopause symptoms, but there's exceptions. You know, there's people that are morbidly obese that have a pretty blissed out menopause and there's people with a BMI of 19 that are miserable. So I think it's really unique, but diet and lifestyle have been shown to make a difference. We had a listener write in not that long ago who was wondering about how being on birth control for years or having an IUD would affect menopause. Does that delay the onset of it? How does that change things? Yeah. So I would say iatrogenically, as in it delays it because we caused it and or we can see it as we protected you from it. And so big picture here, this is kind of a chicken or the egg thing. Um, If you have an IUD that has hormones in it, the progesterone based IUDs, that thins the line of the uterus. Therefore, a lot of women have very light to no periods at all, which means that during those, you know, five years before menopause and periods oftentimes become more irregular or heavy, they wouldn't have experienced that symptoms because we kind of blunted it hormonally. Same thing with birth control pills. If we're regulating your hypothalamus and your pituitary every month to stop ovulation and therefore prevent pregnancy, periods are scheduled, usually lighter and more tolerable. So it's not uncommon for women to stay on birth control pills, even through age 55, to kind of protect them from those yucky years. You know, some women don't need contraception because their partner's had a vasectomy or they've had a tubal, but they choose to do that anyway, just for symptom control. And then some women continue to do it because, you know, 
you may still be ovulating irregularly until you go through menopause. And so they do it for contraception as well. So there's good reasons to do it just from a lifestyle standpoint and also for a primary benefit of contraception. Let's talk specifically now about the intimacy aspect of menopause. I know for some women, uh, I know there are, are women who have written into this show, viewers of the exam room who have said, look, you know, I basically stopped having sex once I reached menopausal age and went through the change of life. The biggest change after that was I was no longer intimate with my partner. So why is it that things can really come to a grinding halt on that end? Yeah, well, and I want to start by saying that, you know, stopping having penetrative intimacy or penetrative intercourse is not necessarily a failure. I think good sex is the sex that you and or your partner are both happy with. So um, some people actually choose to stop having that level of intimacy because they have health issues, their partner does, and they're still best friends. And so I want to throw out there an interesting statistic I read that when you look at high sexual satisfaction in long-term relationships, it is not correlated with frequency of intercourse. It's correlated with two things, trust and cuddling, that closeness and that intimacy. And so before we get into the nitty gritty about that, I just want to make sure that people know that frequent sex isn't necessarily the goal. You know, multiple orgasms isn't the goal. It's having that trust and that intimacy with their partner. Or if they don't have a partner, being able to still feel physical pleasure in a way that feels congruent with their values and their, you know, their beliefs. So back to your question, because I know that was yeah. a tangent, but I think it's important to point out that I think we have this pre, a lot of my patients come to me with this expectation of, I should be having this kind of sex this many times a week. And how do I get myself to that point when maybe that's not realistic anymore? I mean, there's a lot of things that we don't do from our twenties anymore that we don't expect ourselves to do. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Uh, and uh, I was talking with a friend of mine. I'm not going to name any names, but he's like, man, my wife was like, I read in a magazine where we should be having relations four times a week. That's what the average couple does. And so now I'm thinking like four times a week, even I'm like, man, that's a that's a lot. Like, how do you even fit that into your day? Right. So right. Um, four times. Like I know. Right. But that's what the average couple does. But that goes to what it was that you were saying. Like it, it kind of we have this idea in our minds of what intimacy should be. And then mm -hmm. you also use the word trust. And mm -hmm. so I think that like being with somebody who you can trust would make you trust that if you go with your gut about how things should be, about what feels right, what feels good to you, it's going to make those intimate times that much better because it takes that anxiety out of the equation. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. So I think to get back to your original question, why do things change? Um, ch things change primarily on a, I think we can talk about, you know, there's our biggest sex organ is our brain. And so when you no longer have that monthly surge that makes you ovulate, you can argue that you don't have that monthly innate desire. So there's two kinds of desire. There is an innate, you know, it starts in me. I woke up thinking I want to find someone and have intimate contact today versus a responsive desire, which is like, yeah, you know, I didn't wake up thinking about it, but if it's presented to me, I'd be okay with that. So when you don't have that hormonal surge that can lead to that innate desire, that's when I think a lot of women start feeling more empty. Like, hmm, I just don't really think about sex anymore. And if I'm not thinking about it and I'm not seeking it out, then that changes libido. So sex is not a drive at all. We have a drive to for thirst and for hunger because you'll die without it. But you actually, contrary to popular belief of many men, you will not die without sex. So <laughs> sex is more of a motivational response system. Something motivates you 
you respond, and then it reinforces it when you have a good experience. And so when you have less motivation and then fewer re reinforcing experiences, it's kind of easy to get out of the cycle. I oftentimes compare it to exercise. There's plenty of days where I don't wake up thinking, mm, I want to exercise today, but some days you do. But oftentimes once you start exercising, you're like, no, this is good. I could keep doing this. And so it's very similar to that. Um, so hormone changes because of lack of ovulation is a huge part of it. And then the second part of that, when we get beyond the brain, is just the, the physics of it. There are estrogen-sensitive tissues in the vaginal and vulvar area. And so with less estrogen, you're going to have thinner tissue, less collagen, less elastin. And so when it's thin and it's you know more delicate, it can become painful. Um, final part of this, and this is where we'll get to diet being super important down the road, is blood flow. You know, a male sexual response or an erection is very visible. It's very easy to see. But I think in America, especially, we do a really poor job of educating women and men on what female physiologic sexual response looks like. And so when there's less blood flow, women can actually have sexual dysfunction just like men do, but it's harder to see. And so it's harder to name. And so they think, why does it hurt? Why doesn't it feel the same? Why isn't my, you know, why don't I experience as much moisture? And why are my orgasms not as strong? And oftentimes that goes back to blood flow. And so that's a huge change that can happen with aging, which of course menopause also happens with aging. I'm going to ask this question actually for the guys who might be watching or women, if you want to share this with uh, your the men in your life as well, uh, please feel free to do this. So you just mentioned that the tissue gets thinner. I would imagine that that then I could be off base, but that could lead to tearing or certainly a lot of discomfort in a very intimate area and would make any sort of penetration not pleasant whatsoever. Absolutely. So yeah, even if there's adequate lubrication, so if you're using an external you know, lubricant, when that tissue is super thin and delicate, any kind of prolonged friction can be uncomfortable. So less collagen, less elastin, um, even things that normally would feel good may not feel good after you're doing it for the amount of time it may take. And that's also important to point out that latency to orgasm oftentimes is longer as you get older. So it's a bad combination of it's going to take me longer and my threshold for discomfort is going to be lower. Oh, this is this is not going to be sustainable. So you talk about thin tissue. Is that the, uh, is that the same as, as dryness? Uh, because I know that that's another often talked about symptom. Yeah. So the dryness um, is back to the blood flow. I would like to tell people there's no magical gland that causes wetness. Um, there's a series of glands that do cause external moisture, but the moisture on the inside that we think about that, why am I not as moist as I used to be? That's a transudative exudate. I kind of compare it. Well, actually, I can't compare it to sweat because that's a gland. But when you have more blood flow to the tissue, that's actually a moisture that comes across that vaginal mucosa. So less blood flow, less moisture. Also less foreplay, less time for blood flow, less moisture. So it's easy to hack the system and to use an external lubricant, a water-based, silicone-based, aloe-based. There's plenty of great things on the market now. But if you try to insert an erect penis into a non-prepared vagina, it's not going to feel good, even with a gallon of lubrication. Wow. Okay. And so uh, I guess, is there any way that a woman could get prepared? Is, is it more just you need more foreplay, you need more time to become aroused, and that may help things out in that area? Or is yeah. there something else? So that'll help. Um, but the first line of therapy is going to, or for medical therapy, if people choose to, you know, use a medicine would be adding back a tiny bit of estrogen to that tissue, since it is so estrogen sensitive. So 
The medical words we use for this are atrophic vaginitis, and atrophy just means the thinning. And then vaginitis is a little bit of a misnomer because it's not an infection, but women will come in saying, oh, I have this chronic yeast infection and monostat's not making it better and it itches and it burns, but I don't really have a discharge. In fact, I'm kind of dry. Boom, there's our name, atrophic vaginitis. It's something that feels irritating like an infection, but it's actually caused by the thinning of the tissue. And so a tiny bit of estrogen, and there's some other products on the market that have been approved by the FDA for this as well. And then the big new umbrella statement or umbrella diagnosis that came out is the genitourinary um, symptoms or syndrome of menopause. And that's going to include all the vulvar symptoms, all the urinary and bladder symptoms that kind of come into the same package of lack of estrogen, menopausal status. And what, what, when the patient comes in to visit with you, are they often expecting a, like a, a pill that can magically fix things? To, is, is estrogen the first thing that they think of? Um, I think people are pretty familiar with estrogen. I think people think, yeah, hormones, whether they know about estrogen or progesterone or testosterone, yeah, they know that they probably need hormones. I mean, because if you watch TV, you know, you probably need hormones. Um, but a lot of my patients are looking for a more natural or alternative method to treat their symptoms that may come with less risk, or perhaps they have a medical history that is contraindicated or where hormones are contraindicated, you know, such as breast cancer or things like that, where we don't have the luxury of just putting them on that FDA approved um, treatment. Let's talk about some of those more natural uh, treatments here. What are some of the things that you might suggest? I would imagine that diet is going to be high on that list. Yeah. I mean, diet's not going to fix the thinness. It's not going to fix the collagen and elastin. And so I'm quick to tell you that's the one thing a vegan diet can't necessarily fix is the actual tissue. Because with menopause, all of our tissue gets thinner, our skin, our hair. I mean, I say everything gets thinner except our waistlines after menopause. Um, so diet will get you so far from a blood flow standpoint and also from a sexual confidence standpoint. Because most of the time, if you're eating well and taking care of your body, you feel better about yourself. But when you think about the thinness of the tissue, the only thing besides estrogen, as far as a topical, is going to be a moisturizer. And actually, in Canada, they recommend that you use a moisturizer even before you use um, an estrogen. So I try to encourage people to start with a you know portion of moisturizer. And there's plenty of over-the-counter options that include like a hyaluronate, something that's going to be a humectant to kind of keep that moisture there. Um, so there's plenty of options for that that don't require a prescription or even seeing a physician. Are there any procedures? I know that again, like we're we're in such a, you know, fix me now, fix me quick, whatever it takes. If it's not a pill, put me under the knife, quote unquote, so to speak, and fix me up so I can get back to it. Are there any procedures that would help in this case? There are, um, and that's been a really cool thing in the last, gosh, less than ten years that there are now some devices that have been approved. Um, that help with the dryness and the atrophy. So um, the ones that I've used in my practice are the um, carbon dioxide laser. Um, it was originally marketed as the Mona Lisa Touch. And this is um, the same thing as like a Fraxel laser that you may have had or heard of for your face. Um, some brilliant scientists in Italy realized that if we took the same fractionated carbon dioxide laser, shot it down a tube, angled it through a mirror that we could treat the inside of the vaginal canal and cause a bunch of, you know, small columns of destruction that would stimulate the collagen, the elastin, and then arguably blood flow. And so that's very, very effective. It's considered safe. There are some contraindications and some people who aren't a good candidate, but most people are good candidates. Downside of the laser treatment is that it's not covered by insurance right now. And so it can be cost prohibitive for some people. But if you look at a laser treatment versus decades of estrogen, 
at some point you're going to reach an economic break even. Another product is uh, a radio frequency treatment. There's several different companies that market this that works in a similar fashion to stimulate collagen elastin, um, but it's a radio frequency device. And then there's one device that's been approved by the FDA for at-home use. And it's really cool. It works with infrared heat. So it's heats to 42 degrees Celsius, similar to the radio frequency treatment. It also uses red light therapy, which dermatologists have used for years for skin. And then ultimately it works with a vibrational frequency. And it's not just, sorry, that's my other computer. Um, not just a fancy vibrator. It is set at the correct hertz to stimulate the fibroblasts, which is part of the tissue matrix. And so for women, they're a little bit hesitant to come into the office and have something done. This is an at-home device that they can buy and use at their leisure. And also you own it after that. So you can use it for maintenance therapy. And that's called the V-Fit Plus. Is that also kind of a... I, I don't want to call it an embarrassing, but maybe a delicate conversation for, for a woman to have. You talk about a device that's that intimate. Yeah, um, it, it's not usually what I lead with, but I keep a sample on one of my counters so people can see it. And it definitely is a conversation piece. But once we start having the, you know, the discussion about this, I think my job as a physician isn't to tell people what to do. It's to educate them on all their options, the risk and the benefits, and then to figure out what's going to work with their lifestyle, with their resources and with the time that they had to devote to it. And so there's no, you know, no one ever died of a dry vagina. I'm going to say that all the time. <laughs> they didn't. No one ever died. Um, but you may feel like you want to kill somebody. So I think it's a huge quality of life issue, even if it's not a life or death issue. Oh my gosh. Uh, that may be the quote of the We're, five years that we've been doing this show. Never that, make a uh, bumper sticker. It's going to be that. I'm telling you, uh, vanity license plates, if nothing else. Yeah. Um, okay. Let's uh, back to serious. Um, yeah. I recently had a conversation with Dr. Robert Osfeld about erectile dysfunction. And he and I were talking about, obviously from a male standpoint, how critical blood flow can be and how a diet can severely impede blood mm -hmm. flow to the penis. You've mentioned blood flow for women as well. So let's get into the correlation between diet and blood flow and sensitivity and how everything works from a sexual standpoint for a woman as well. Where does diet factor into all of this? Okay. Um, I wish I could remember who I heard this from first, but basically vascular disease anywhere is vascular disease everywhere. And so when you think about the size of the blood vessels that are in the heart that ultimately get clogged to cause a heart attack. Well, what's smaller than that? And so diabetes is a great example. And because there are so many people with diabetes, I think it's a good way to get people's attention. So if you have diabetes, you get your annual diabetic eye exam because you're looking for diabetic retinopathy because we're worried about the blood vessels and the, you know, and you check your feet because you're worried about blood flow and you're worried about neuropathy. Um, well, where else does blood flow? Well, our whole body. But I brought one of my friends here. This is my clitoris model. Um, we think about blood flow to the vulva and to the pelvic floor and the engorgement or tumescence that has to happen there. But if you have anything of impeding blood flow, whether it's vascular disease, whether it's diabetes, let's say you have hypertension and you're on a medicine, an antihypertensive, that's going to decrease your blood flow. All of that is going to affect your sexual function as you have that tumescence of the blood flow um, in the vulva. And this is whether you have a hysterectomy or not. This is not about your uterus. This is about the vulva, the vagina, the clitoris. Um, if you don't have that elongation of the vagina or if you have a uterus that tilts of the uterus that gets it ready, um, 
here in the South, my favorite explanation is like trying to swallow a piece of dry biscuit or cornbread, your preference, <laughs> without chewing it enough or without having enough spit or saliva or lubrication in your mouth. And that's the way I finally got through to one of my patient's partners was, you know how that feels? I said, what would you do if you tried to swallow something and you didn't? He said, well, I'd take a swig of tea. And I was like, okay, now we're talking about lubricant, you know, because <laughs> a lot of people are hesitant to use a lubricant. They think it's a failure. It's embarrassing or whatever. So if you have things that may not be entirely reversible or preventable by diet, you know, if you're just now, you know, you're 70 and you're like, oh my God, I've never heard about a vegan diet before. What can I do? Well, yeah, you need to switch to a low fat, high fiber plant-based diet. But in the meantime, we have to accommodate for that lack of blood flow, which means giving yourself longer, just like some men need more stimulation to reach erection, or expecting that you're going to have to have some sort of lubrication to make up for the fact that you're not going to have that transudative exudate and moisture that comes from the increased blood flow. A quick detour. That is a heck of an analogy uh, for, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm dead serious. And it got me to wondering, like, how how versatile do you have to be as a doctor to be able to speak the language of your patients so that they understand your message? You know, you have to meet people where they're at. And because this topic is so taboo and especially so taboo in the current generation that is menopausal, um, like I mentioned, they're kind of the guinea pigs. Um, I'm very quick to kind of figure out what people's um, what their barriers are to intimacy, you know, and I don't expect that everyone wants to talk to me about that, even though it is in my clinic name, sexual wellness, people kind of know that when they meet me now. Um, but I just ask people, are you satisfied with your sex life? I don't ask them anymore if they're even sexually active because I once had a patient say, well, I had sex yesterday, but I'm not having sex today. Am I sexually active? I think it's more about, are you happy with your sexual status? And if you are blissed out being celibate, that is perfectly okay. And if you have sex with multiple partners of multiple genders and you're happy with it, that's okay. It's if you're not satisfied or if it stresses you out or you're concerned that you're not optimizing your experience, that's when I come in. And so I think I've hopefully done a better job as I've moved through my career of asking the right questions so that people know how to give me the information that I need so I can help them. You do have um, a very disarming way of speaking, right? To get people to drop their guard. I mean, you just, it, it, even something as simple as using the term that you just said, blissed out, you know, is like, oh, that's, that's such a neat way to think of things, right? And so that's going to put somebody's mind at ease. So, I mean, I think that you're onto something here, Doc. I really, really do. Well, thank you. It's um, it's definitely been a calling. Um, it's not what I imagined I would be when I applied to med school, but it just kind of evolved over time. Or I also think I may have an imaginary tattoo on my forehead that says, no, really, tell me everything. It shows up a lot on airplanes. <laughs> <laughs> you get on the airplane, it's like, oh, you're a gynecologist. I know gotcha. a woman. <laughs> oh, I bet yeah. you've had some doozies of conversations uh, flying across the country. I bet so. I bet you have. I don't yeah. read journals on airplanes anymore. Mm -mm, yeah. No, no, <laughs> ma'am. Uh, okay. Uh, as we kind of wrap up here, um, I want to ask you about soy. That's a hot topic, obviously, mm -hmm. with uh, the release of the WAVE study. Um, just what what is your opinion as a doctor uh, on soy, this highly controversial food? Yeah, I, I, I try to keep it really simple because I mean, we could get out in the weeds on soy, you know, organic soy, genetically modified soy. Um, I will start by saying what I say about soy is the same thing I say about any other food. Um, you want to eat foods in their most unchanged form. 
So soy coming as naturally as it can in its most unchanged way. Um, and by that, I mean not highly processed soy, not isolated soy protein powders and gigantic unnecessary doses um, is absolutely good for you. It's good for men. It's good for women. Um, from what I read, the biggest benefit for soy consumption is probably actually during the adolescent years for girls when we look at protection later on down the road um, is isolated soy protein powder good for people, maybe in small quantities if you're an athlete training. But I think that soy gets a bad rap because we put all soy in one container. It's like sunscreen. And I won't go down that rabbit hole because I could talk all day about sunscreen. But not all sunscreen is bad. Some kind of sunscreens are not as good for you. Um, but I think that we're seeing more emerging data. And I'm super excited. I've not actually read the Waves um, study research report yet um, that we're getting some good quality data on the benefits of soy, especially for perimenopausal women and menopausal women. And let's kind of put a bow on everything here. And if somebody is just now joining the conversation uh, and, and they need to hear just the highlight. So I think that based off of what it is that we've talked about so far, my takeaway, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that a eating a healthy diet uh, is not necessarily going to be a cure-all here, but it can significantly help. Is that accurate? Yes. Um, eating healthy is good for your mood. Remember, your brain is your biggest sex organ. Anything that boosts serotonin is going to help. Um, being close to your ideal body weight is going to make you feel good. I've done given a whole lecture on having to modify intimacy based on arthritis and obesity and how physical problems can lead to problems with intimacy. So it's going to help with your sexual confidence. It's going to help with your physical functioning. And if I've said it once, I've said it a thousand times, it's going to affect your blood flow. It's also going to keep you alive longer. It's about quality, not quantity. But one of my favorite patients once said, honey, this is why they call it the golden years. I'm having the best sex of my life. And so it's about being around long enough to have that long-term deep connection, if that's what you choose to do, with a partner and about having good quality of life and being able to be active and have fun. And if sex is part of that fun, great. But I think that's where diet really makes a difference is it's going to let you live life more on your own terms or, you know, something gets all of us. No one makes it out of this life alive. If you get cancer, if something happens to you, you're going to have the, a better ability to tackle what you're presented with because you have a stronger machine to work with. And so let's let's end with this. Uh, let's compare. Uh, somebody who's been eating a high-fat, high-protein, ketogenic diet for years, right? The keto diet. And then let's compare that to somebody who's been eating that low-fat, healthy, whole-food, plant-based diet for a number of years. Yeah. When we're talking about going through menopause, when we're talking about the odds that somebody is going to have those golden years in the bedroom that are just extraordinary and you want to shout it from the mountaintops – you know, what are the odds that somebody's going to have those extraordinary golden years eating that plant-based diet versus a high-fat keto diet? Is there a way that you could compare those? Yeah, well, I can't spit out a statistic for you because that would not be an ethical study to do. But that does bring up an important point we haven't touched on, which is constipation. And that, that is a huge part in sexual function. People that are chronically constipated and have abdominal and pelvic pain and or large stool in the way. Um, that's usually the first way I get people off a keto giant diet is asking like, 
tell me the last time you pooped. But I think a keto diet and being acidotic, that is a pro-cancer diet. Cancer loves an acidotic environment. And so um, whether we're looking at it not being sustainable because it's really not good for the environment to eat a high-fat keto diet, or it's going to potentially lead you into other problems such as heart disease, diabetes, um, I think it's hands down. It's undeniable that plant-based diet is going to be a better option for you. Sure. There's a few people out there that are able to live. And there's actually, I know keto vegans, but they're not high fat keto vegans. So I don't want to totally poo poo a keto diet, but I don't think it's going to be the best thing for your vascular system and definitely not the best thing for, you know, overall sustainability. Uh, you know, what might be the best thing for you today is What's to go that? visit christycopmd.com. Your new website is fantastic. Thank you, Chuck. I appreciate that. I'm really excited with the way it turned out. Yeah. And uh, if somebody wants to reach out to you and work with you, you're in the Little Rock, Arkansas area, correct? Correct. Yes. I do not offer telemedicine at this time, but I would love to see anyone that wants to come to Little Rock. And um, yeah, Little Rock, it's the best kept secret of America. I think so as well, just because you are there. And if you're on Instagram, at Christy Cobb, MD is the account that you're going to want to follow. Dr. Cobb, thank you so very much for being so amazing and open and honest and forthcoming with us here today. It's really been an enlightening conversation. Well, thank you for having the courage to talk about the taboo. And it's always a pleasure to talk to you. And I really, I love your work. I love what you do. And I have lots of patients that listen to the exam room podcast now because um, of me being on here in the past. So thank you again, because you've been able to broaden their horizons. We have links for you to visit Dr. Cobb's website or schedule an appointment with her in the episode notes. She is really the sexual wellness champion. She's doing a lot of big work down there in Arkansas. So cool to have her on the show. And there you have it. Part three of our three-part series on this game-changing study on menopause, a study that came about from just one phone call. And now that one phone call has the potential to help millions of women find the same relief that Francine had, that Anne-Marie had, that Margot had, the three women who you heard from during this series. You heard their stories. And now maybe it's time to create a story of your own. Hopefully you'll find the same relief. Remember the numbers. 84% reduction in moderate to severe hot flashes. And 60% of the women stopped having them all together by changing to a low-fat plant-based diet that includes soy. And if you want more of the numbers, you want to see the science for yourself, well, there is a link to the study in the episode notes. But if you're ready right now, this very second, to make a change, to put Dr. Barnard's three steps into practice, but you think, I could use a little bit of help with that. You can go ahead right now and reach out to the doctors and dietitians at the Barnard Medical Center because they would love to help you. Visit barnardmedical.org to schedule an appointment or pick up the phone and do it old school. 202-527-7500 is the number to call barnardmedical.org or 202-527-7500. The cool thing here is that insurance is accepted and telemedicine visits are available. Talking about 21st century house calls here. 
And that means with telemedicine, you can have that doctor's visit or that visit with a dietitian right in your own home. You don't even have to go out. Appointments are available in more than a quarter of the country. And for a full list of states where services are available, log on to barnardmedical.org or call 202-527-7500. And for today and this series, that is going to wrap things up. Thank you one more time, Dr. Neil Barnard, for being here. And also to Francine Reagan-Pollock. And of course, Dr. Christy Cobb. Thank you you sexual wellness champion, for joining us. And for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, as always, keep it plant-based. <laughs> <laughs>